Welcome to the In His Voice podcast hosted by me, Rob L. Lowe, where we talk about everything from the playground to the stadium, from the bedroom to the boardroom, and everything in between. Um, and before we go forward, make sure you hit that like button, subscribe, share, and click on the, the bell icon so you can stay tuned and never miss out on any upcoming episodes. Well, today's episode, you guys, you have no idea this has been... Uh, 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 a fiasco in the making trying to get here I'm in Indianapolis um, it, it I had delayed flights thank you Southwest for getting me here and so if you see this while the flight was delayed your staff was courteous and so I'm looking for sponsors hope you can uh, consider that but it took a while to get here we're in the middle of winter it's cold outside I'm actually shooting uh, in my suite here at the hotel um, and, and this episode was so important that even with all the challenges that it took to put it together with the, the hotel spacing, um, the travel challenges trying to get here, setting up the cameras and everything, it really was important. In season one, I, I talked a lot about the, the challenges that, that happened to young men and, and in, even adults, whether personally or professionally. Um, you know, between now and, and, and the end of season one, and some of you may know my book came out, and um, and and as part of the journey, even with the book, I want to talk about some of the, the 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 things that don't get talked about as relates to men, uh, particularly men of color, but men in general, and a lot of that stems from childhood trauma that that we experience. I personally experienced it. If you if you got the book, you read about it. Uh, but today's guest. Um, for season two, episode one of the In His Voice podcast, I had to bring on an expert, and I'm going to try to do more of that this season. And so today's guest is a good friend of mine. I met him when I was in grad school about 27, 28 years ago. Uh, the dude was a class act then, and, and I knew he had something special. And so um, welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Randy Horton. Uh, I'm going to let you describe your actual title and what you do, because I don't want to jack it up. And uh, and then we're going to have this show, man. So thank you for being patient, Dr. Horton. Welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate it, sir. Thank you so much, and good to see you after such a long period man, of time. Man, it's been. Yep. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. As uh, Rob mentioned, I got my doctorate degree at Indiana State University, uh, actually the first African-American male to do so in the school's history, so oh. made some history. I While I was down that. there, yep, yep. So it, it was actually a beautiful day that day. I got my degree because they, uh, you've been through the experience, and they uh, call you by your different schools. Yeah. And when they called for my program, people in my program to stand up, uh, I that year I was the only one that actually came back for graduation. So you know how huge Holman wow. Center is. So when I stood up, there was just this black male standing up in that huge stadium walking across the stage by yourself by myself Man, getting my doctorate. yeah on, on yeah. so many it levels, was an amazing dude. experience that day and uh all that went into making that happen and then the ramifications of it has been just a wonderful experience so uh yeah so dr horton clinical psychologist and uh practicing here in indianapolis indiana i uh do a variety of things. Uh, part of my practice, I supervise um, direct care staff okay. as they interact with the clients. So yeah. I will look over treatment plans and 
do uh, verbal staffings with them. I also do evaluations for people who are looking to have bariatric surgery and people who have chronic pain conditions and are getting some type of implant in their body to help with pain management. Uh, I used to do evaluations, uh, had contracts with organizations and the Indianapolis Police Department and Fire Department, so times they bring on new recruits, I was one of the people that um, evaluated them. Or if they were in a shooting incident, sometimes I would do the debriefing with them in that scenario. Wow, so um, uh, I've had a, a very experience uh, as a psychologist and something I'm pretty proud of. Okay, so man, before we get into the meat of today's show, uh, this journey to become a psychologist, um, where did it start for you? Like, So walk me through just the thought process of when you knew you wanted to be one, and then I know I met you at Indiana State. You went to school before that at a couple other places, hmm. and you, you played some fraternity. So, oh, yeah, you know the fraternities. Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Yeah, I had to say that because I'm trying to get <laughs> listeners, so I had to let y'all know I got a noob on the on the, on the, That's right. on That's the right. podcast because yeah. I'm non-discriminatory against D9. But Excellent. talk about this journey, man. How, how what, why? Yeah, so uh, interesting. Um, I've always, you know, liked interacting with people, listening. I, you know, I view my interest in psychology as one of um, looking at personality and trying to fit pieces together, kind of an analytical approach, which is what psychology is. A lot of it is research. Most times people think of psychology or professional psychology as this uh, older gentleman uh, sitting in a chair next to somebody laying on the couch, right? But psychology is so diverse in so many other waves. But, you know, Listening to people, talking to people, I've always enjoyed just experiences looking at different and diverse perspectives of, of life. So that was probably the, the internal drive. And then my mom one day, maybe when I was in sixth or seventh grade, said, you know, a lot of people always like talking to you and sharing things they don't really share to other folks. And I said, yeah, but I didn't really give too much thought about it. But she said, you know, there's a whole field called psychology where you know, people these therapists and they talk to folks and kind of help them through problems or they help them. Maybe they don't really have a specific problem, but they just kind of want to do better yeah. in their life. So, you know, maybe something you want to have interest in. I said, I thought about it. So over time, it was between that law and then I was even interested in hair, like being a barber really? or a hairdresser. Too. Dude, yeah. where, first of all, where are you from? Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, so that's like a hair capital of the world, really. You're from the Detroit. D. Yeah, from the D. You're a, you're a noob from the D. Yeah, yeah. So so those are the kind of three things I was interested in. And then when I went to high school, we had a uh, teacher that taught psychology. I went to actually a Jesuit high school, and uh, so most of my teachers were uh, priests from the Jesuit faith. And uh, one of the priests was teaching psychology, and I really enjoyed that class, and it was kind of what my mother talked about. Um, so when I went to college, uh, you know, I majored in psychology. Went to Morehouse College, proud graduate of that, HBCU, and then you know, then I matriculated. Well, you're killing me, man! You, the background yeah. is impeccable, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then, then I matriculated to Indiana State, uh, which was an interesting experience in yeah. itself because I went right from undergrad to a doctorate program in psychology and most people go undergrad to a master's then I didn't a doctorate know it was yeah it was it was only a few programs that did that and it was almost a do or die scenario because at the time when I got admitted 
they only had a doctorate degree you could get. They didn't have a master's. So if you didn't finish that doctorate, you would have spent six or seven years and could have left with wow. no piece of paper to show Just your efforts. Just a bad feeling. That's right. Yeah, so it was a lot of pressure to make it through that. About my third year in the program, they instituted a master's degree that you could get after two years of work and you had to do some other things. So they, did they give master. you the master's? Did they retroactive? No, they, they didn't. They didn't make oh, it retroactive. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so you did all the work that a master's student got. You got the doctorate, yeah. but they didn't give you credit no, for the master's? No master's. Listen, no. Indiana State. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the class after me was the first class that they made it official to do that with the masters yeah get out of here so it was crazy so it was, it, it was a do or die scenario uh to get through that experience yeah man this this conversation is a long time coming i wrote this book randy and in this book i talked about a lot of things that happened in my childhood i talked about um mental abuse I talk about that my sister's experience I talked about um, the 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 exposure as a kid things I shouldn't have seen mm -hmm. and then things that that people asked me to do that I shouldn't have that shouldn't have been asked right mm -hmm. not that I did I didn't do them but they shouldn't have asked me as a kid and as a teenager and then some of the unhealthy decisions I made around relationships and sex and um, things that affected me later in life, man, and, and, and not knowing boundaries, not knowing what's good versus bad and uh, affecting my ability to be happy, to be healthy mentally, to have healthy relationships, to, to even recognize boundaries, as I said. Like, it was a long time coming. And it took me until the age of 41 or 42 before I got the guts or the courage or just the frustration to say, I need to go see a therapist. Mm. And I remember walking in, dude, and it was, it was a white guy in Florida. And I walked in, and, you know, the first thing I said, you know, I got a chip on my shoulder, right? I'm walking in, I said, look, man, I don't know how this is supposed to go. But, I, you know, everybody keeps telling me I need to see a therapist. And, you know, people ain't walked in my shoes. And, you know, I got a chip on my shoulder. Cause mm -hmm. I, I'm trying to set the tone for this meeting. Mm -hmm. you're not you're not about to analyze me and you don't understand my life the therapist looked at me he said first of all thank you for coming he said what I will tell you is we can start anywhere you want to anywhere you want to start mm -hmm. and he said if you don't want to start that's okay too he says but for people to criticize you he says, if they ain't walked a day in your damn shoes, they can't tell you your story. And when he said that, dude, I start crying. Mm. Because what, what he did is, in my, and I'm not a therapist, but what he did for me was, he was like, dude, I acknowledge you. That's right. I hear your pain. I hear your frustration. Mm -hmm. I even hear that hurt about you don't want another person to judge you. Mm -hmm. It's your safe space. And whenever and wherever you want to start, I'll wait. Dude, I just started crying. I'm 41, 42 years old. Mm. Yeah. And even then I was scared to talk because I'm about to share things that my wife didn't know. Right. My kids didn't know. No one knew that I just held. 
-hmm. and wondering why when I went through my, my childhood, I had so much anger, so much resentment, so much hurt. Why I, I did things as a teenager to get people to laugh with me so they wouldn't laugh at me. Sure. Trying to hide every hurt, every insecurity, so many. And so I don't want to unpack mine. But I, but I do want you to walk me through, man. Like, I know my story is not unique. I know you've seen this story a million times over. Yeah. What keeps men? What keeps, what keeps families from getting help for young men? What keeps young men from asking for help? And what keeps men, dude? Like, there's so much in there I know, and I know it's not easy, but dude... Why did it take me 42 years? Or why did it take the next Rob 42 years? Yeah, yeah. You know, <clears throat> your story is unique because everybody has their own story. Okay. Even if other things are very similar, your Rob Lowe, what you go through is quite specific for Rob Lowe. Okay. Um, everything and everybody has their season when their brain tells them, okay, I've had enough and I need to seek help thank God for you you opted to go to a place even though you felt vulnerable and scared that survival mechanism that it showed itself in maladaptive behaviors before was actually showing itself in kind of pro-social behaviors by going to see a therapist that took a lot of strength to do that and a lot of people don't do things to cultivate self-care um I would say in, in our kind of Western society, we very much, uh, unfortunately, value very stereotypical male gender roles that really kind of keep us a prisoner. Yeah. We're not able to really fully engage and reflect our humaneness across the board. Yeah. So people, you know, children, uh, research suggests that children at the age between three and five really start gravitating to these kind of maladaptive gender roles because they get reinforced for doing it. So, you know, you get hurt, don't cry. Hmm. You know, you cry and shake it off. Be a man. So they're connecting, don't cry and be a man. So you're conditioning that kid that to be a man, I don't cry. Don't talk about A, B, and C. So to, so to be a man, don't engage in certain conversations or don't articulate certain feelings so over time this child who could have been very diverse in their expressions is relegated to just expressing themselves in these very narrow viewpoints and over time your mind and body say I can't survive like that so people start doing maladaptive things to survive drugs poor relationships etc uh, be a man take on responsibility but don't ask for help right so I'm not doing well in school but I'm not going to ask the teacher I need help because I feel scared and I don't want my friends to laugh at me I don't know how to do A or B activity I don't ask for help I'm just going to try to do it on my own so now you're isolating yourself and you're decreasing your ability, one, to deal with being vulnerable and still be able to ask for help, but you're also not learning the skill that it's okay to ask for help. That's how we grow and mature. 
So uh, we start setting ourselves up for failure in the long term. And then that becomes generational because maybe we have a poor coping skills, but we're able to get with a mate. But then we start teaching our own children those same things, or they just observe us doing it. Most of our learning comes through observation and imitating somebody else's behavior. It's not really didactic where you're sitting in the classroom and learning. It's I'm watching somebody else do something, then I imitate and I start doing it. So if my dad doesn't talk a lot, doesn't verbalize certain emotions, I'm not really going to do it because I'm observing him and saying that's what malehood is supposed to be. So then I'm going to follow along suit. And then you get generation after generation after generation mimicking these behaviors. And, then you know, it comes to a point where maybe something else, you know, some extraneous event has to happen to force somebody to change what they're doing. Maybe there's been a blow up and a divorce happens and somebody says, man, I really got to start doing something different. So they go to therapy or maybe they talk to their pastor or maybe they're just talking to some friends. So maybe slowly things start to change. But, yeah, usually there's some event that causes a change to happen, you know, where you just say, I got to do something yeah. different. But it may be not Rob at 15 making that change. It's Rob at 41 making that change. But thank God you did it and didn't get to 51 without the change so <clears throat> you know there's a lot of things with when I'm talking to men when I used to do direct care yeah um, one of the things I would educate them on is just um, we would have this feeling wheel so it was a wheel with concave circles on it and it may start off with just kind of basic emotions like angry sad etc then the next set ring of that it would give more adjectives for different types of emotions and the ring outside of that more adjectives so we'll look at the most basic emotions you can have to the most nuanced emotions that you have so we would just start talking about what are different ways words you can use to express emotions because a lot of times guys are just relegated to like I say as earlier I'm happy or I'm sad or just basic stuff uh -huh. but what about can you say I feel vulnerable can you say I feel scared can you say I feel intimidated? Can you say I feel gleeful? Right? Can you say I feel irritated? All these other words that we have in the English language to express ourselves, and men a lot of times don't use them. Women are socialized a little bit differently so that they are kind of conditioned more through practice to use more words to express themselves. But guys are more conditioned to use less words to express themselves. So if you're only limited to just I'm sad and I'm mad. Well, how does that come across? You know, a lot of times then you're connecting sad or mad with a behavior or aggression, which the two really don't go together. But when I'm angry, then I'm aggressive. But if you had an opportunity to say, well, I feel irritated, I'm vulnerable, that sometimes can be a debriefing coping skill to let some of that emotional frustration out so it doesn't come across through physical aggression or some other type of maladaptive behavior. So a lot of times when I work with brothers, it's just kind of getting them to think about other words we can use okay. to express themselves. That's a coping skill yeah. under the self. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, when I first went to the therapist, I've seen three different ones. And and for those that haven't been through therapy, man, and, and again, you can you can chime in and correct me if I say something wrong. Therapy is not a magic pill. Nope. I remember going there the first couple of times and he would give me 
books or excerpts from books and things to go read. I want you to read this, understand this. I want you to practice this. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, you know, they make it look like you go to a therapist and you're laying on the couch and your feet is propped up. Mm -hmm. And it's this very insightful conversation. They're asking you tough questions and, you know, but keep going. Let's explore that. My first couple sessions with the therapist wasn't like that. My first couple sessions were, why do you think that is? Let's talk about it. And I would change the subject, and he'd be like, okay. And then he'll let me go, and he'd be like, all right, we'll come back to that, right? And, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me off the hook. Let me take that back. He wouldn't keep me on the hook. Mm -hmm. Like, I would find myself trying to get out of a conversation, and he'll let it go, mm -hmm. right? Okay. But I really didn't want to let it go. Like, and so I ended up going to see another therapist. And eventually I went to see a, um, a psychiatrist, right? And the psychiatrist, because um, it was a joint, it was a joint practice that had a therapist. But if I wanted anxiety medicine, sure. I had to see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. So she gave me some anxiety meds and I, and I told her, I said, Dr. Eba, I was like, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm, and she was like, "Look," she gave me a pill. She's like, "Let's talk about it." But but this is why she's like, "Yeah, okay." But this is why I feel. This is why this happened. She's like, "At some point, you have to stop pointing at everyone else. At some point, all the stuff that you're talking about. At some point, you have to look at you. And and it's as much as it's stung." Mm -hmm. I was like, that's what I wanted. Right. I didn't. I came to not get off the hook. So the first therapist, I look back now, I go like, he, he met me where I was. And maybe if he'd have pushed harder, too soon. That's right. He knew, like, dude. But I wanted it, right? I just mm -hmm. didn't know the process to get there. I, you know, I want it all now, right? I yeah. want to be healed. Yeah. I want you to get this out of me. And I'm tired. And, and, and yeah. what do you, what you mean? Like, why well, I got to keep reading these pages? Like, he would give me the same page. Read that such and such. Mm -hmm. I'm, here we are 13 years later. I was like, because I didn't get it the first time, right? He was like, I can't introduce you to another thing. That's you right. ain't started practice. It's a building process. Yeah. That's right. Because I wanted to go, and I wanted the magic pill. I wanted the tough conversations. I wanted to cry, yeah. and I wanted to feel like when I'm done. After 40 minutes, right, I'm I, good to go. Dude, yeah. I wanted that. Yeah, it's not going to happen. That's not real. No. As a doctor who does this for a living, <laughs> how do you know when you got a Rob Lowe in your office, right? <laughs> how do you know, like, okay, this dude right here, <laughs> yeah. how do you know? So I think, it, you know, what's the referral question when somebody comes in? Like, are they coming because uh, they want to come on their own? Yeah. Or are they coming because it was court ordered? Are they coming because a spouse told them to come? So your motivation is going to be different when you're coming to therapy. Like, why are you here? What's the motivating factor that you're yeah. here? So you got, we have to take that into consideration. Because if somebody's, like, court ordered for treatment, there may be just because, like, I just... I'm just going through the steps. Yeah. They're not going to tell you that. It's like, I just got to go through this so my probation officer or whoever can check the box and I can move on to the next thing. So they maybe not are there because they really want to get some insight and behavior change. Okay. It's like, I just want to get on to the next thing. You know, if the spouse is 
on you to come. Yeah. It's like, well, the old lady's on me, and man, I just want to get her off my yeah. back. Almost, almost like being court ordered, but it's like I'm trying to say to marriage, but maybe if I do this, then maybe she'll be quiet, and yeah. I'll learn a couple things, and we can move on. So maybe a little closer to trying to get some insight, but it's a little bit different than somebody just saying, I'm at a point where I really want change, yeah. right? Statistically speaking, it takes somebody like four to seven times of doing something a certain way before they actually change. So, you know, a substance abuser is taking them four or seven real attempts before they actually are like, yeah. I want to get on the road to sobriety. So you can take that same logic for about any behavior we want to change. The first time you do it, it's probably not going to happen. Weight loss, yeah. stop smoking, whatever it is, four to seven times before you actually like, okay, I'm actually like working the plan. So we have to really start with motivation. Yeah. Then we have to look and see, you know, the emotions that people are coming to the sessions with, not just the first session, but all of them. Because a lot of people have uh, misperceptions on what psychotherapy is. Yeah. You touched on it, and I briefly mentioned it about, you know, some older gentleman sitting on a chair and somebody's laid on the couch. That's what you see on TV. Yeah. That is a very stereotypical reflection of a certain type of psychotherapy called psychoanalysis which a lot of people don't really do okay. anymore they do it but it's only it's one technique that therapists may use and some people just specialize in doing that type of therapy uh, then you have other type of therapy client-centered therapy then you have cognitive behavior therapy and it just goes on and on just like a surgeon has different techniques to manage when they're doing surgery or a physician uses certain medications to help with certain things so therapists use different techniques or therapy styles depending on the problem at hand because certain therapies work better with certain mental health conditions yeah. you know there's a, a better matchup yeah. between them so um, that's something else that we have to take into account when we're working with somebody is like what type of therapy would work best for this person. Sometimes you have to move to different therapists because one therapist may just say, I really only do this one type of therapy. You know, I'm a specialist in this. Uh, but that may not work well with the client yeah. at the time. So that's the second thing we have to look at. Is like first, it's just kind of motivation while you're here. Second, is kind of therapy and therapeutic approaches that we want to use with that person. And then third is kind of what is the client's goals? Like, what do you want to do? What do you see yourself eight sessions from now? How will you be different? Okay. Um, certain therapeutic styles are a lot more involved in talking. Other therapeutic styles will give you homework. So it's like stuff you got to do yeah. in between sessions. Yeah. So it seems like yeah. the first therapist is really about yeah. that, giving you work to do in between sessions. That it's kind of my approach when I was doing therapy because I want I'm only with that person 50 minutes out the week once yeah. a week yeah. you got all the other minutes of the day that you're dealing with by yourself or with your family members so in between time to kind of keep you tuned in yeah. you got to work on some activities it's kind of like if you go see a personal trainer you're not with that personal trainer 24 7 you're like with them once or twice a week but in between that time they're like okay Rob I want you to do you know, 20 minutes of cardio on Wednesday. I want you to do, you know, some weightlifting on Friday. Then we'll meet again Monday. Yeah. And once you've done it, it's same kind of scenario. You got to work on some stuff in between time. Because whenever you're going to therapy, you have to keep in mind uh, the years it took you to get to that point 
it's going to take you some years potentially to get yeah. out of that yes. point to see true change. Now, sometimes it doesn't take years. Hopefully, it takes a couple months, a few weeks, because hopefully you and your therapist are breaking down some issues and you say we're going to work on A first, then B, then C, versus we got to work on everything once you can't do it that way. You will lose focus on what the agenda is. So a lot of times, to your point earlier, people will come into therapy and just want a quick fix, and it's not going to happen. You are in the process of peeling that onion back layer by layer, personality layer by layer, trauma layer by layer, <clears throat> your vocation, relationships layer by layer. And we want to validate those things and have a basic understanding of them because that is all what led up to you being you on this day and this time because we are a summation of all of our experiences of our life. Every day we live, we are a summation of everything that's happened to us up to that point in time, you know. Added just so much to this stuff. You know, how, what advice would you give when you see uh, a, a man who clearly has experienced some type of trauma and it affects them and their, either their, their, their ability to cope with what's happening around them, mm -hmm. um, have healthy relationships. Like, how do you, when you come across men, how do you help men? Mm -hmm. Maybe two parts. How do you help men find the, the, the courage? Uh, it's, it's crazy. Courage or mental fortitude in order to go get mental health. And then mm -hmm. how do you help families who have young boys? Like, what, one of the things for us, man, as black families, you, you mentioned it a little bit, right? As men, we're conditioned. Be tough, be strong, don't don't cry, don't do this, don't do that. But then the other thing, even within the black community, yeah, don't ask, don't tell, mm -hmm. right? And so many of us have, have, have walked around scarred. Keep from, those secrets. Right, this, yeah. this, the, the, the family secrets, uh, the neighborhood secrets, whatever the secrets are. Mm-hmm. Because we, we're taught, like, yeah, you all right. You know, if you still living, you all right. Yeah. That's our that's thing. You important. can't do that. You all right. And, no, we're not all right. Not all, the walking dead is the way I refer to them. Yeah, so how do, well, how do you, for someone who's never walked into an office, man, what, what are the things you would say to them or their loved ones be like, this is how you at least introduce them to the subject? Yeah. So once I kind of get an idea of what they mean by trauma, because it means different things to different yeah, people, I really fair. need to kind of understand what they mean by trauma and what, what occurred to them. Uh, stereotypically speaking, I could say that uh, whether you're a child or an adult, sometimes when traumatic things happen, the first thing you think is, what did I do wrong? How did I contribute to that? And that's where the guilt of trauma comes in because you think it was Dude. your fault, right? And most times, uh, fault can be parceled out. But most times, uh, when trauma occurs, when you talk about kind of physical, emotional, sexual abuse trauma, it's yeah. somebody that's in a higher position, i.e., adult, doing something to yeah. somebody that's technically a lower position, a child. 
So that adult is taking advantage of that child's innocence. So you as a child are supposed to be innocent and trustworthy of the adult. The adult is not supposed to take advantage of that and abuse you because of that. So it's not your fault. So that's the first thing. Again, taking in the concept and context of what that person's trauma was, the idea that you put too much blame on yourself. You put too much guilt on yourself. And sometimes as men, again, with those stereotypes of be strong, be a man, take on responsibility, accountability, we take on too much a proportion of that guilt. And guilt is a, a feeling of I did something wrong, but that can lead into shame, which is I'm a bad person. Like yeah. something is just inherently wrong with me. Why yeah. did that person sexually abuse me when it was three other people in the re- in the room? Maybe something wrong with me. Yeah. So that's a whole different kind of conversation there because that's deeper than guilt. Guilt yeah. is focused on the behavior. Shame is really focused on me as my whole entire entity of as, a, as a person. So it, it's a deeper feeling of wrongness there. So you kind of have to tease those two things apart and then start backtracking on ways to better arm yourself of what trauma looks like currently in your life, how you're replaying certain things. So to your point of difficulty having relationships, that is probably one of the worst things that happens with trauma is that because it's somebody that you typically knew or trusted, uh, had a level of faith or comfort in and they abuse that, it's hard for you then to trust other people or you're skewed. You're either under-trusting people or you're over-trusting people. It's like you can't hit it in the middle there. So that's what causes people having problems in relationships. So somebody who may not have had trauma has a better vision of, those are some warning signs. I don't think I need to be around that person. But the person through trauma, that vision is skewed. So they aren't able to pick up maybe some of those warning signs. Or they're too forgiving because of the warning size like this is the fourth time this lady or man has you know slapped you around or cheated on you so well they said they won't do it again so i can tell you to trust them it's a cost to pay to continue to do that yeah but because of their childhood trauma and always kind of wanting to still even though that parent abused them that child still wants to trust that parent and say i want you to be there for me you know I kind of want to idolize you as my parent I want to feel safe around you so you continue to trust but you continue also to get abused so that that style of interacting with people really kind of never goes away so they bring it into their teenage and adult relationships and then they find that they are continuously being abused again or sometimes you mimic what the perpetrator does so now you're abusing yeah people because you think oh that's the way you get your needs met is to you know emotionally manipulate physically violate people and that's normal you know, it's not normal but the, they've been skewed and scarred and they think that's the normal way of doing things it's it's uh i wish you know by 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 by, prof- by trade my profession is uh human resources hr executive mm-hmm. And there's many, many times I wish that companies that I work for had on-site therapists mm-hmm. because I could tell that many of the things that I saw leaders do mm. 
was rooted in their inability to be able to understand the impact of it or even process why they did it. Like I saw the way many leaders led, the way that they talked, how they treated other people. And I go, man, that's a deeper issue right there. Mm -hmm. Like, and you haven't, you haven't attempted to go address that. You're, you're, you're manifesting or you're acting out on something that is not related to your team. It's a trigger, whatever that thing is. I see it. And unfortunately, other people have co-signed it. So now you still think it's okay to do it because right, you've been rewarded for it. That's right. But at, I'm telling you, at, at at a human level, man, that's not that's not what is good for people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as I sit here and I talk to you, man, like I say, I, it, it isn't about me. But I think about how many people I know or I knew who could benefit from. You know, one day, two days, six months, six years. There's no magic number I know. But from your experience, for people that want to come on their own, how do you know they're engaged and how do you know, okay, they're they're about to fall off? Is there a way, are there signs that you can tell, like, <laughs> this really is, this is their journey, right? They came here because they wanted to, but they're committed Versus, you're like, okay, yeah, maybe they're not ready yet. <clears throat> that happens, you know. A lot of times, you typically are um, weekly appointments, every other week appointments. So if you see people kind of canceling at the last minute or no showing appointments, that shows a motivational issue in general. But you also have to keep in mind what have we been talking about in therapy lately. Because maybe we're getting closer and closer to that sweet spot of pure vulnerability. And they're like, I don't want to. I can't talk about it yet. So they're not going to verbalize that to me and say, Dr. Horton, I'm just not ready to talk about that yet. They just avoid coming to the office. right? So sometimes I have to reach out and say, hey, you know, Mr. Smith, Ms. Jones, I haven't seen you. Or you missed the last two appointments. Give me a call. Just check in and see what's happening some people call back some people don't most do call back because they're like oh he reached out to me and really noticed i wasn't there of course i'm a notice you're not there but the human part of it like i matter i'm not just a name on his sheet you know 11 o'clock appointment 12 o'clock appointment etc so then times those times people you can kind of get them wrapped back in and then sometimes I, you know I ask them I say hey you know lately you haven't been doing some of the homework we talked about or you know you've called at the last minute and canceled or you've no show you know what's happening what's going on with that and it may take a minute but sometimes people eventually just I got other stuff going on I'm frustrated I'm angry I'm saying well this is the place to talk about it's like well I know I didn't do this other homework and I knew you'd get on me because I didn't I didn't that do was it. Me. I like, that was well, me, dude. That's true. I mean, it's part of being accountable. You know, you say you wanted it. That's me trying to help them yeah. stay on task. Yeah. So sometimes you have to. Um, sometimes you have to push hard with people, and sometimes you just kind of gentle push. Because if I just push you, your initial reaction is to tense up and stay yeah. stoic. But if yeah. I gently push you, sometimes with people will fall to the side, right? And that's kind of what you want. Sometimes it may take a little gentle push, and a lot of times people will appreciate it. It's, 
again, kind of like I use an analogy, if you have a um, a coach and you're exercising, sometimes it's like, come on, get it, man, one more to it. And, you know, you don't really want to hear it, but you know it's good for you to get that accountability, right? So it's the same thing in, in therapy. It's not to berate you or belittle you, but it's yeah. like this is the goal that you said you want. I see you moving away from that. What's going on to trigger that? And then how can we get back? on task with that so really it's just having the conversation and, and identifying it don't let it go is what i would end up doing with the with the client all right uh, the next the next couple questions will be interesting is it chilly in here to you because it got cold i know you cut it down yeah it's fine i mean okay he's good uh no the balance between religion and the science of therapy. And what I mean by that is mm -hmm. I know people who be like, well, I don't need therapy because I got God, mm -hmm. right? And and I'm, I, I, I am a spiritual person. Uh, I, 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 I truly believe that there is a, a higher being, a heavenly father. I'm a spiritual person. And I do believe that God gives people gifts. And what I would tell people is like, who do you think gave the doctors the capacity to learn medicine? You know, it was God. Mm -hmm. So you don't think God created therapists? You don't think God gave people the ability to be able to understand, you know, um, the aspects of mental health? Right. So, so you know, I, I'm not asking you to talk about your religious beliefs, but have you have you experienced that? Have people come in and be like, well. I know they don't come because I only go to my pastor, right? And and the pastor has never been trained in in, in mental health, but they've been trained in anointing and spiritual growth. So how, mm -hmm. how do you how do you handle that? How do you have that conversation? Yeah, that's a great question and a very and very common one. I think regardless of your culture. Yeah. But I know within African American culture, there seems to be some uh, consternation about that, where brothers and sisters are kind of caught in between. So, you know, there's, it's one of those things where pastors are kind of like the gatekeeper for health care treatment, too. <clears throat> they, their, their word carries a lot of weight. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard clients, and I've been in the pews when I've listened to pastors say this, too, where they'll say, you know, uh, just pray on it, you know. Uh, and I've heard them literally say, you can get rid of your medication, just pray to God. That should be the first thing you do. And I wholeheartedly agree that from a spiritual standpoint, the first thing you should do is be praying. It should be your first thing and your last thing. Yeah. But there's a whole lot of room in between there, too. And I think that there's so many commonalities between psychotherapy and what spirituality we want you to do that they really complement each other. They aren't divergent things like one or the other. They both should be happening together um i've also heard pastors say hey pray on it and make sure you go into your doctor's appointment make sure you're getting your yeah. annual exam maybe if you got a therapist make sure you're going to see your therapist so they're a little more holistic in their approach so i'm not quite sure you know what the mindset of it is of a pastor who's telling his congregation not to do other things that would be adaptive and healthy for that person yeah. I can't imagine them telling them not 
to take their Medicaid, although I've heard it. Right, I've right, seen right, it. right. And I just thought, boy, you're doing some damage to that person. Because what if that person doesn't take their anti-anxiety medication, right. their psychotropic, their cardiac medication, yeah. their cholesterol medication? You know, there's about 7 billion people on this planet. Personal belief is that God works through us. Yep. And he says, I'm going to work through Joe Smith, M.D., Randall Horton, Ph.D., to help my fellow parishioner in Christ that's down there to get help. Yeah. Yes, I want him to pray to me, but I want my people to work together to yeah. help each other. Yeah. That just seems more in line with at least my spiritual viewpoint and me as a therapist. So, yeah. you know, anytime I talk to my clients, I don't try to push my personal agenda of, of spirituality onto them, but I just, I kind of list out, you know, have an understanding of what their religion and spirituality says in terms of health care. Yeah. I say kind of what we're going to do in therapy, and then I say, you know, what do you see that's not congruent? with each other most of them can say I don't see anything not congruent so does that help you in in making sure you can come to therapy and go to church and say yeah Dr. Horton I, I don't know what my pastor's talking about from that perspective so I kind of help them come to the conclusion that it's okay to do both yeah mm -hmm. um, make sure you're great way to do it okay. so, so I, I, I have met people and I start telling people, okay, let me go back. Because people who go to therapy do this too, right? People who go to therapy swear they become therapists. And then they tell everybody you need to go to therapy. <laughs> right. right? You got to go to therapy. You got to go to, you need to go to therapy for that. Yeah. So, and I fell into that. Same thing, you start losing weight. Right. You're like, get to the gym, bro. Do your right. thing, do your push up. Eat right, bro. You happy about the change. So um, you want to spread the good and, word. And many of us make the mistake. Uh, uh, trying to diagnose people like listen I'm telling you yeah, uh, you're probably suffering from this and here's a coping mechanism but like look I just learned that last week right, right. I'm only practicing twice but I'm telling you That's it's going to work on you yeah. but but I, I have definitely come across people who uh, who said I said why don't you go to therapy why I'm going to see my pastor mm -hmm. and I go yeah but that's great but is, is he trained you know in, in mental health but he's, you know, but he's blessed. Like, so are you, but is he trained? Mm -hmm. And and not that I take away from it, but you're right. There are many people uh, helping someone with family conflicts is one thing. Spiritual conflict is another thing. But when we start talking about mental health, if you don't get to that, the rest of those things don't get fixed. Mm -hmm. All you are is, is treating or, or, or creating opportunities for people to exist with them. But you're not getting to the root cause of how to you eradicate those things. Mm -hmm. the, the root cause is so that they can have these healthy lives. As a therapist, dude, three questions for you. Dr. Randy Hor Randall Horton, Randy. What's the most rewarding part? Of being a therapist, what was the most challenging part of being a therapist? Those two, and then I'll give you my last question. Okay, yeah. So the most rewarding part is that somebody's invited me into their life to 
uh, walk this path that they need to walk yeah. to try to get better. I mean, I just take that to heart because they, one, they don't have to do it. Two, uh, you're probably at one of your most vulnerable points in your life when you opt to come to therapy uh, because there's, quote, a problem. Again, sometimes people come to therapy because there's no specific problem. They actually just want to do better in what they're already doing. You know, they're, quote, high-functioning and, you know, whatever it is, they just say, I just want to do better at A. So sometimes therapists just help that. It's always not just, you know, doom and gloom and, like, life sucks, that kind of thing. But... So to be able to walk that path with that person and to see them from point A to get to point B to point C and see the fruition of the work that they put in is very rewarding okay. for them. It's probably the most rewarding thing I can experience, right? Because okay. uh, I'm going through some of those trials and tribulations with them, not directly, but I'm holding their hand and they're holding my hand as we yeah. walk that path that's yeah. scary. Um, probably the most frustrating part is just patience because sometimes as a therapist you may have a clear idea of where you think things need to go uh-huh. and assuming the client wants to travel that path with you but you can't go faster than what the client is or patient is willing to do yeah. so learning how to step back and work at the client's pace is probably can be frustrating for me personally at times I'm like well just do A, B and C and I can get you there but sometimes I have to say nope it's not about me I'm walking their path they're not walking my path so I have to make sure that I'm checking myself because it's about them it's not about me and us getting to that goal it's about making sure they get to their goal Uh, I said I had one one last question. I got one before that one. Do therapists see therapists? Some do. And as I mentioned earlier, the idea of this uh, psychoanalytic yeah. therapeutic approach, in order to do psychoanalysis, you also have to be in psychoanalysis yourself. It's probably the only one that requires that. Wow. Yeah. So all the other type of therapies that you do, it doesn't require that you are seeing a therapist requirement. But for your own self-care... A lot of therapists do see their own therapists because they're, you know, for whatever reason, work-related stress, stress just as being a therapist and what yeah, that takes on as being a, a caregiver. You know, yeah. there's just a lot that goes into that. Um, and then just, you know, life issues that come up. It's like, man, I'm putting out this fire, putting out this fire. I got my clients. I got to need time for me. Okay. You know, I mean, I've gone to therapy myself just because I, I need time for me, I don't. I want to be on this side of the desk. I want to yeah. be in this chair. I don't want to be Dr. Horton. I just want to be yeah. Randy, and yeah. I want to be vulnerable, sitting in that chair and let somebody else write out the treatment plan and like you know this is what we're gonna do and we're gonna focus on this and how are you doing with this and opportunities to cry and laugh and all that. You know, I had therapy where I just told the therapist like I just need to cry and after about five minutes I just broke down and. Started and he just you know he sat there and he just let me do it because I just needed to do it I just yeah. stuff was building up I just needed it to come out yeah so um, yeah I mean it's not required but it's probably good that 
at some point therapists just have somebody else they can check in to for their own self care. My last question for you, uh, as as relates to the interview. When I was doing my book, when I was telling the stories about my childhood, and I, it, it took me 19 years to finish the book. I worked with mm. five Jeez. or six different authors to help right. me write it. Okay. Right? And finally, a young lady out of Tallahassee named a- Asia Masonette helped me get this thing done. But every time I told a story, I relived the story in my mind. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt it. Yeah. Like, the, the story about losing my mom, the story about some of the things that happened uh, with family and some things that happened in corporate America, man, mm. it just cut me like a knife, man. Mm. Like, because I was like, why would that happen to me? Right. Why? Like, what did I do on earth to deserve that type of treatment? My question for you is if you could go back and talk to a young Dr. Randy Horton before he comes, before he becomes you, if you can go talk to your teenage self what would you tell him <laughs> that's a huge question what would I tell myself my te- my young teenage self probably um, you're probably stronger than what you think you are and you have more um, kind of blanking on the word grit or okay. backbone and what you may perceive has. Sometimes you don't know what you can do until you have to deal with some stressors, right? Yeah. And sometimes you just don't know how you're going to react until you're in a pressure situation. Yeah. Uh, if somebody had told me what I had to go through to get my doctorate, what I've done it earlier. I said, no, yeah, no, I ain't strong enough to make that, man. Wow. I mean, in my head, I was like, to be a psychologist, I know I have to do it. But if God laid out in front of me and said, you're going to do it, but I'm going to show you beforehand the stuff you're going to have to go through to do it, I would have said, man, don't put that on me, God. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to do You don't know until you just Dude, how many get years your mix. From, from the time you started till you got through all your clinicals and Training and everything before you began. Seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Seven years. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, t- and 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 technically the program is five years long. Right. But I blew my knee out playing basketball, so I technically lost a year. Had to get a job. Wow. But all the emotional pain and suffering with that, because I'm like. It was right in the middle of grad school, well, towards the end, when I had to start on my dissertation, my research project. And I'm sitting up, you know, getting ready to have surgery on my knee. Then I ran out of money because I had spent up all my money for rent and all that. So I had to go get a job. So it just delayed wow. me graduating. And then just, you know, politics and being the only black male in the program that came with a stress, oh, racial man, stress. That's, so that, that's was, in my book so, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't ask earlier, we talked about what you do. Do you have private practice or do you? 
or you working for an organization and if if someone wanted to reach out to you how how would they get a hold of you because i want to make sure i put your contact if you if you're comfortable with it yeah i don't have a private practice where i'm seeing patients okay you know but i have kind of my own little referral list so somebody called and they're like you know i'm looking for a black psychologist i could help them okay with that yeah but i'm not taking on any clients per okay. se, direct patients like that myself you know what i do is the supervision work to have contracts with other organizations to supervise their okay. their staff. Is, yeah. is is there an organization or a practice that you feel comfortable sharing, hey, if people are interested, give this place a call? Yeah, um, for, uh, I could get you the, uh, the actual email, but um, we have an Indiana Association of Black Psychologists. Okay. Um, and they have a Facebook page, and on that page, there's a way to uh, get referrals. There you go. From that, yeah. So Indiana Association of Black Psychologists on the Facebook. All right, I'm gonna look page, up yeah. their uh, their Facebook page, and then probably try to put a screen capture. If they have an email or contact, I'll put it in. Well, mm -hmm. man, listen. Uh, first of all, thank you for being patient, because I know it was a, a a headache trying to get this thing set up, trying to find the right lighting, but you were patient, dude. This is my first podcast of season two, and and Lily, it had to be meaningful. It had to be one uh, like this one, and it took someone like you to have the patience uh, for us to do all the setup stuff, but still sit on this couch and deliver such a powerful message, man. And so, uh, brother, I'm blessed. I'm grateful. Uh, you you truly have always exemplified uh, a positive role model and I remember when you were in grad school I didn't know how hard the program was but I remember you being there just been very studious and I, I pray that you continue to do this work man and change the lives of young people and men and uh, for those that are watching the podcast um, I'm, I'm wearing this shirt this hoodie says struggle made me uh, and I wore it intentionally because um, it's it's created by a uh, a local uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he has a shop down there in the uh, She Event Indy uh, with Katina Williams, and so I want to shout out to to the gentleman. I bought this down there, but I wore this for this show because it defines my life. Struggle mm -hmm. made me, mm -hmm. uh, but I was fortunate enough to come across people like you early in life who uh, through osmosis poured into me and showed me <laughs> what could be. Yeah. And then later in life, uh, when I realized what you did for a profession, helped me to understand the power of, of therapy. And so I never told you that either, right? Oh, so, okay. Appreciate that. Um, but everything happens for a reason. That's right. So, brother, thank you. It's thank been a you. great episode. I appreciate Excellent. having you. Excellent. And listen, make sure you like and subscribe, share the channel. And I hope you got something out of this. And I'll see you next time on the In His Voice podcast with me, Rob L. Lowe. See you.